The topic tonight, inshallah, is uh, things that lead to atheism. And specifically, the subtle things that are not very obvious that could potentially increase levels of atheism in the Muslim community. And these are things that... The thing about atheism is we think of it in black and white terms, that either someone is a Muslim or they're a non-Muslim, either someone is a theist, someone who believes in God, or someone doesn't believe in God. It's a very black and white distinction. But in reality, there are gradations. There are some uh, Muslims, their iman becomes weak, and their confidence in Islam it becomes weaker for whatever reason, and step by step, they might approach kufr. So may Allah protect us from that and protect our children. I mean, uh, but this is the kind of gradation that takes place over time. And there are many factors that can influence this type of increase in atheism. So I want to just share with you very quickly some of the subtle types of um, ideas practices even, concepts that can increase the likelihood of atheism in the uh, in society and specifically for Muslims. So one of the things I've mentioned in other talks on this Australia tour is the idea of progressivism. Uh, progressivism is the idea that as human beings uh, do more science, they research, they study, they become more knowledgeable about the world. Their knowledge increases as a society, as a civilization. And they believe that morality also improves and increases. And this is progress. We progress as a people, as a society, as a species. Step by step, the latest people are greater than people of the past. People today are better they're more moral, they're more knowledgeable, they're more rational than people 10 years ago. They're better than people 100 years ago, let alone 1,000 years ago or 2,000 years ago. This idea, is it something that is Islamic? No, of course not. It's something that is exactly opposite of the correct Islamic understanding of history. We know that the best times are the times of the Prophet ﷺ. The best generation is the generation of the Sahaba and the Salaf. Those are the best generations. And since that time, things are continuously decreasing, getting worse and worse and worse and worse until Yom Al-Qiyamah. That is the correct, proper understanding of history. And when we look at society around us, we see that this is proven every day, that this is the case. But the progressive understanding of history is that, no, people today are much better than people of the past. In the past, they practiced things like slavery. In the past, they justified things like patriarchy or the authority of men over women. In the past, they would punish you if you engaged in inappropriate, intimate relations with others. In the past, they did not accept transgender. In the past, they did not accept homosexuality, and on and on and on. So the past people were immoral, they were ignorant, they did not understand science and technology. Now we do, so now we're better. This is a progressive view of history. The problem is this progressive view of history is being taught to children. This progressive view of history is being taught in schools. It's being taught in 
universities. It's being, uh, it is just the presumption, the assumed reality, the assumed understanding of history that's taught in movies, shown in movies, depicted in movies, in books. This is the status quo that is being taught. So if a Muslim is indoctrinated by this idea of progressivism and is exposed to this idea of progressivism, then this will have a very subtle but, imp- but strong impact on their belief in Islam. They'll start questioning Islam. They'll start questioning the wisdom of Islam. They'll start questioning, well, why? And you see this in some, of, some parts of the Muslim community. They laugh at the idea that we, should, we need to improve our institutions and adopt modern ways. We need to stop living in the past. We need to ignore... Why are we reading books from a thousand years ago? Why are we reading, you know, following scholars from a thousand years ago, 1,200, 1,400 years ago? Why? We need to have a new approach. We need to have a new method of understanding deen and uh, and organizing our community, organizing our families. We... We see people like this who are talking like this and this is because of the influence of progressivism. So these people are not saying we're atheists. They're not atheists, they're Muslim. But they're pushing an ideology that leads to atheism, that produces atheism. And if you talk to some of these you know, so-called ex-Muslims, murtaddin, they've left Islam, this is one of the things that they'll mention. They'll say that Islam is not up to date with the times. Islam does not adapt. There are things that are invented. There are ideas that are discovered and Islam does not adapt to them. Islam is not flexible. Islam is rigid. We don't like that. We want to adapt. We want to change and we want to grow. And that's why we can't be Muslim. So this is an ideology that is going to increase atheism within society. Another uh, related issue is the fact that the modern world has this negative and false portrayal of the past. The, uh, this is a part of modern propaganda and it is taught in universities, it's taught in schools, this idea that if you live, a, a person who's living 100 years ago or living 500 years ago or 1400 years ago, it's like a person is in hell. A per, the situation is so bad in history. You know, you had practices like slavery and there's no medicine, there's no technology and there is none of these modern convenience of, of life. It's just the dark ages. Everything more than 50 years in the past is the dark ages and this is how our history is portrayed this is how our history is portrayed so imagine if you are learning that all of human history are the dark ages this encourages you to be progressive to adopt you know the woke modern ideologies and to reject your tradition to reject islamic history to reject the teachings of the deen to reject the Qur'an. The Qur'an is something that is from the past. The Qur'an is something that is from those so-called dark ages. So if you buy into this kind of mythology about the past, this paint, this caricature, this cartoon, this myth that they have painted, 
to de depict the past as backwards and dark and, and vile in terms of morality, then you're going to be more inclined to reject the Quran, to reject the Prophet وسلم, and to become an atheist. Another very subtle uh, but destructive thing that is being taught in schools is something called the fact versus opinion distinction. What is a fact and what is an opinion? This is what they teach in school. They say that a fact is something that is objective, that can be established with science. And that is what a fact is, whereas an opinion is everything else. So this is what they teach children in school. But this is, a, this is false, even according to secular philosophers, even according to secular people who are not Muslim. This is a false distinction. Because if you say that facts are only things that are justified by science, there are many things that are acceptable as being true, but they're not established by, or they cannot be established by science. So moral claim, even the morality that these non-Muslims are accepting, Things like, well, don't kill others. Don't, if you kill an innocent person, this is wrong. Okay, can you prove that, that it's wrong with a scientific experiment? Can you use a telescope or a microscope to see that it's wrong to kill someone or it's wrong to steal from someone? Can you use any kind of scientific method to determine that? No. Okay, that must be a, an opinion. <laughs> It's not a fact, so the only other option is that it's an opinion. So this is what is creating this problem of moral relativism, moral subjectivism. The idea there's no actual objective moral truths. Many of the, our youth, because of this school system teaching fact versus opinion in this way, because of the university system, they think that, well, morality is just a matter of your personal preference, your perspective. They'll also think that, well, religion, any kind of religion claim, religious claim is not a fact. Oh, you think that Allah exists? Oh, that's your opinion. It's not a fact. You think that uh, Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa is a prophet? Well, that's your opinion. That's not a fact. That's just your opinion. That's your belief. It's just a belief. It's your opinion. It's not a fact. And you'll be shocked because I teach a lot of Muslim youth through my classes and this is actually the way that they think. And the source of this kind of thinking is because they've been taught fact is scientific. Fact can be established through math and an objective scientific source. Everything else is a opinion. This is what they teach, teaching children in school. And then when you talk to them, they'll say that you'll ask them, okay, what does it mean to be uh, Muslim? And they'll say, well, you know, According to Muslims, Muslims, in my opinion, believe this. They believe in Allah, they believe in the Messenger, they believe in the Quran. In my opinion, in my view, they'll make it about opinion. They'll make it about a personal perspective, my perspective. They won't say, yes, Allah exists, the Prophet ﷺ is a true prophet, he's the last prophet, the Quran is the word of Allah. They won't say things in a clear-cut, factual way because they don't actually think of it as a fact. They think of it, this is my, my opinion, my perspective. Muslims have one perspective. Christians have a different perspective. Hindus have a different perspective. These are all just opinions in the marketplace of ideas. And we can very 
humbly express our personal opinion, our personal view, but we can never say this is a fact because we cannot establish it scientifically. The only thing that is a fact is what scientists say, what is established through a research university, etc. So do you see how this is actually a lack of Iman? This can, technically is a lack of Iman because to have Iman, you have to know La ilaha illallah. You have to know Muhammad al-Rasulullah. You have to know, you have to have that knowledge. It can't be, oh, this is my dhan, this is my assumption, this is my perspective, this is my opinion. That is actually not correct Iman. So many of our youth, Allahu Allah, maybe I shouldn't say many, but there are youth who don't even technically meet the requirements of Iman because they have this kind of perspectivalism or relativism about the pillars of belief in Islam. So that is, uh, that is a subtle but very critical uh, form of atheism or something that leads to atheism. Another uh, very uh, subtle problem but extremely toxic is this idea of free choice. Um, every requirement of Islam is now being depicted as a personal choice. And we know about this when it comes to hijab, for example. Um, this kind of uh, apologetic response is given regarding hijab. Like, oh, our sisters are wearing the hijab because it's their personal choice. No one is forcing them. We don't force anything on anyone. This is not correct. This is not correct because in one sense, yes, you know, we, uh, we can't force anyone in this society because we don't have that kind of legal backing or legal authority to force a particular practice by physically forcing someone. So it's true in that sense, but in another sense, it's absolutely false. It is not a free choice. Hijab or uh, praying five times a day, or fasting in Ramadan, or not drinking alcohol and taking drugs. These are not personal choices in the sense that they're free choices without accountability, without liability, without consequences, without punishment. These things, if you choose not to do them, if you choose not to wear the hijab, if you choose not to pray five times a day, if you choose uh, to accept riba, they, these things have consequences in the akhirah. And those consequences can be very severe if Allah doesn't forgive us. So these, these are not free choices. A free choice means you choose something or something in the hukum of that thing. It's mubah. It's, it's permissible. You know, it's permissible. I can choose to wear this blue color thobe or a white thobe or a gray thobe. Uh, or shalwar uh, kameez, or some other style. These are amongst the choices that are permissible. So this is, this is a free choice. I have the choice to choose, you know, this particular style, this particular... That is a free choice. But something that has a consequence where if you do it, you will be punished for it by Allah, that's not a free choice. That's not a free choice. So we need to stop giving this false impression because we're just trying to please kuffar or we're trying to be, you know, try to present Islam as being very soft and flexible and accommodating for all kinds of, um, you know, foreign ideologies, kuffar ideologies. We need to stop presenting these things as choices. 
They're not choices if there is consequences, if there's punishment for it. And the problem with promoting this idea of free choice is that it extends to Islam as a whole. This is what will lead to atheism because you have Muslims, young Muslims who say that, okay, well, everything should be a free choice. No one should force me to do anything. No one should force me to choose to be Muslim. Why can't I choose to be Christian? Why can't I choose to be Jew? Why can't I choose to be atheist? Shouldn't I have the free choice? It's unjust to be forced to live as a Muslim and practice Islam and to believe in the pillars of Iman, etc., etc. It's unjust. I shouldn't be forced. I should have a choice. No one should punish me if I choose to live my life according to this ideology or this religion or no, no religion. I should not be punished. It should be a free choice. So this is obviously kufr. This will take you out of Islam if you have this kind of ideology or this kind of assumption. But that assumption comes from some place. It comes from a place of this idea of free choice, having the ability to choose, having the liberty, having the freedom to make your own individual choices. We have to see, we have to understand choice in the way that Islam defines it. And the way that Islam defines it is that every action has a hukum. Every action has an associated ruling. And there are five, generally five rulings. Something could be wajib or fard. Something could be mustahab, recommended. Something could be mubah, permissible. Something could be makruh, it's disliked. Or something can be haram. Those five rulings. So what is considered to be the fr absolutely free choice is what is mubah. And then things that are mustahab and makruh could also be considered free choices. Because what is makruh, something is makruh if, if you... Uh, abstain from doing it, you will be rewarded. And something that's mustahab, if you do it, you'll be rewarded, but you won't necessarily get punished by not doing it and vice versa for makruh. So this is the, that's the realm of the free choice. But when you get into the what is haram, what is uh, wajib, then we're no longer in the realm of what is free choice. So we have to be very clear on this. We have to define this for our youth. So another very toxic idea related to this is no one can judge. Don't judge. We shouldn't be judging anyone ever. Never criticize anyone for anything. Just have husnodvan. This is a very dangerous idea. This is a very destructive idea that takes some people out of Islam. Because you extrapolate. If we cannot judge in our personal lives, other people for the wrongs that they do, then who gives Allah the right to judge us on Yom Al-Qiyamah? The same logic would apply. He has no right to judge either. So this is, this is a very dangerous topic. No one can judge me. Don't judge others. Don't speak against the bottle. Don't speak against, don't do any kind of Amr bin Ma'roof wa Nahi Anil Munkar in joining good and forbidding evil because we should have husnudhan of everything. This is false. When it comes to correcting falsehood that we see around us, there are certain conditions, right? So if you see something that is wrong, um, there are certain conditions. First of all, you have to make sure that you know that what is being done is actually wrong, is actually munkar. Because sometimes there could be ikhtilaf or there could be a difference of opinion that's legitimate within Islamic 
different manahij, uh, different madahib. There could be ikhtilaf. But some things are definitely clearly wrong. You see that, okay? So that's one condition you have to know that it's actually wrong, munkar in Islam. And then you also have to judge, you know, the best approach. What is the best approach for correcting that wrong? Maybe, depending on who it is, the best approach is a direct approach and say, look, brother, I saw you um, drink the wine. I saw you, um, you know, go into the nightclub and I'm just advising you that this is wrong. Please don't do this. Uh, I saw you, um, you know, go and uh, have this uh, conversation and mixing with the opposite sex. You know, I advise you that this is wrong. Maybe that's the best approach. Sometimes it's a person that might be your father or your mother. And if you approach them directly and say, look, this is wrong, that will make them actually more stubborn. And they'll actually keep doing it more. So going directly to them and saying it's wrong is not the best approach. You have to find a different approach that will have the best effect. Because ultimately you want to end the wrongdoing and you want to promote the good. So these are things that we have to implement instead of this, this kind of modernist mentality that no, always have husnudvan of someone and never correct them, never speak out against the bottle. This is a, this is a new kind of misconception of husnudvan. Husnudvan means having a good speculation of someone. So is husnudvan important in Islam? Yes, of course. Do, does your brother have the right or your sister have the right that you give them husnudvan? Yes, they do. But husnudvan means a situation of van, a situation of speculation. But if you see with your eyes that they're doing something wrong, or they say something wrong publicly, or they advocate for a wrong position clearly, then there's no, this is not a situation of van. There's no van involved. It's, you're seeing it. It's yaqeen. You can see it very clearly that it's wrong. And in that case, if you don't speak out, if you don't correct it, then it's actually you are potentially sinful for not correcting it when you could have corrected it. Husnodvan is when it's actually, you don't know. So you see someone buys a, a Ferrari or buys a Lamborghini and you say, oh, he's probably a drug dealer, <laughs> for example. That is suadvan. Why are you assuming that he's a drug dealer just because he has a nice car? Or, oh, he has such a nice house, he probably takes riba. He probably bought that with riba, a riba loan or something. That is, that is su'advan. That is suspicion that can be ithm, that can be a sin. So that's what we have to protect ourselves in the cases of van. But not in the cases where something is very open, clear-cut, no doubt about it, there's no speculation, there is no van. Then it's required for us to speak out. And this is what Allah tells us that we must do as Muslims. Another very, I'll, I'll end with this, or I might end with, with another thing actually. Let me just, the last, almost that last example is practicing a sin and falling into sin, but then justifying that sin. This is a, a trick of the shaitan that someone participates in a sin and they feel bad about it. They feel guilty about it. And then they make tawbah. They ask Allah for forgiveness. But then they fall into that sin again. And they feel guilty. They feel bad. They 
make tawbah, they ask for forgiveness, they uh, resolve never to participate in that sin again, but then they fall into it again. And then it's associated with a lot of negative emotions, they feel guilty, they feel self-conscious. And in those moments, shaitan might come, or their own ego, their own nafs might come and tell them, look, you know, this is, why should you feel bad? Why should you feel bad about this? This is not something that you can control or this is not something that is in your hands. This is because of this factor or maybe your parents mistreated you or maybe it's the fault of the imam. He didn't really teach you properly or you didn't get the right kind of tarbiyah. Some reason you shouldn't feel bad about this. And shaitan comes and you start justifying the sin or you start belittling the sin saying, oh, this is not a big deal. This is not really a big problem. This is not really a sin, actually. And then once you reach that point of saying that this is not actually a sin, then it's no longer about sins. Now we're talking about iman. Because something that is haram, you are now justifying as halal. Or you are now considering it to be halal. This is a threat to your iman. This is potentially going to take you out of Islam because it's kufr to make something that is haram halal and vice versa something that's halal to make it haram. So this is a very subtle type of kufr that can affect any Muslim, not just young Muslims, it can affect old Muslims, middle-aged Muslims, etc. Another uh, big, big um, practice that potentially can lead to atheism is the lack of discipline for children. The lack of discipline for children has a huge negative effect on our youth and on the next generation of Muslims. Why? You have this idea that is pushed within modern psychology that there should be no negative feedback for your children. You should never tell your child no. And this is actually something that I was told when I started having children. Uh, you'd ha I'd have family members um, or friends say, you know, just make sure that you never tell your children no. Don't find some other way, you know, to discourage them from doing something bad. Because when you say no, that will negatively impact their psychology. It will negatively impact, you know, their sense of self. They might become, you know, depressed or they might become, you know, have some kind of mental or psychological problem. So never, ever tell your child no. And if you want to, you know, discipline your child, just make sure that, you know, you do it with a smile and you try your best. No, Habibi, you know, this is, you know, this type of approach with your children only. Because we know that the previous generation, and we know the past is so evil and the past is so bad and the previous generations were stupid, they didn't know anything and we know better. In the previous generations, there was discipline, there was con consequences, maybe there was spanking, maybe your dad was angry with you, your mom was angry with you, maybe your mom, you know, took the ship ship and threw it at you, you know, and we know that that's so backward and bad and evil. Now we know better. Now we don't, we don't do those kinds of things. This is, this is a type of delusion, unfortunately, because what happens to the child? The child has not 
faced any type of consequence. The child has not actually experienced any type of pain from doing something that is wrong. And just so that everyone is clear, I'm not saying that you beat your child black and blue. <laughs> I'm, that's not what I'm advocating. But, you know, there's nothing wrong with a spank, right? There's nothing wrong with a spank on the bottom. Or, you know, when I was a kid, if I did something wrong, my dad would just hold my ear like this. It didn't hurt, just maybe stung a little bit to have your ear pulled. But that was, it's a little bit of pain. And it's a reminder, it's a good reminder that, hey, you know, don't do this. And at a young age, that's the only thing that a child might understand. The child at a certain age doesn't really understand if you sit and explain it. Yeah, Habibi, this is, you know, not the best way, you know, if you just go and put your hand in all the food and we go to a guest's house and you, you know, write on the walls and you destroy their property like this is Habibi, this is not the best way. No. <laughs> Not, the child is not necessarily going to understand that. What the child understands is a, a little spank. And that the message sent, message received. Right? That is very, very critical. And I'll tell, but you'll ask me, okay, how does this, how does this create atheism? You know, maybe it's going to create an ill-mannered child, a, a little hellraiser running around destroying property and, and being just a, uh, nuisance, a public nuisance, but how does it actually lead to atheism? And Allahu A'lam, but I believe that children especially need to have this kind of formative influence in their life or formative effect in their life where they do actually taste punishment and feel punishment. And they, I think it's a good thing and a necessary thing for children to actually fear their parents, to fear their parents. And when you actually look at children, and I've seen many children in my life and my own children, the children who they get disciplined, their, their parents might spank them or their parents might give consequences. Th those children, they love their parents so much more than the children that have never been punished. The children who have never been punished and the parents are like, yeah, Habibi, oh, they get him whatever they want. Oh, you want this candy? You want this ice cream? You want this new video game? You want this new phone? Sure, everything. I'll give you everything, Habibi. Those children actually, not only are they spoiled, not only do they become incompetent in life, they can't actually study or accomplish anything or face any type of challenge or hardship. But to top that all off, they also don't really like their parents. They look at their parents like, oh, this is my servant. My mom and dad, they're really my servant. Okay, they're nice, whatever. They don't have that deep love of their parents. But the children that have gotten that spanking every now and then, they have a much deeper love for their parents. And again, I'm not talking about abuse. I'm not talking about beating black and blue. I'm not talking about those parents who they're legitimately uh, taking out their frustrations and their stress on their children or their wives or whatever. I'm not talking about that. That's wrong and we, that's not according to the sunnah. But spanking is part of the sunnah. And there's clear hadith on this. The Prophet sallallahu uh, recommended that the child that is not praying by the age of 10, you remind them with a, a, a hit, a light hit. 
So the Prophet ﷺ is actually recommending it. And there's other hadith too. There's other hadith too on this topic. So what, how does this lead to atheism? It leads to you know, not loving your parents and not really having a deep respect and love for parents. But think about it like this. If a person grows up and does not have this sense of fear of authority, how can he fear Allah? How can you fear Allah if you have not experienced that as a child? And this is what we see. We see in this generation, this generation of children that are now going to high school and they're going to college, they haven't had this fear of authority because that fear is, is connected to love. They haven't experienced that in their life with their parents. They don't understand it when it comes to Islam. They don't understand what it means to fear Allah. And they actually resent it. They actually hate the idea like, I should fear Allah? I should fear Allah? Why? And Allah is going to punish me? What does that even mean? I don't accept this. And th this has become like a big source of confusion and doubt. The, the entire idea of hellfire is a, now one of the big shubuhat that we didn't have in the past. In the past, even myself, like I never even thought that the idea that Allah punishes people in the, in the fire, I, that never came to me as like, oh, subhanAllah, this is not justice. And this is, how can this be? How can a all-merciful God punish people in the fire? Never occurred to me. And it didn't occur to many generations of Muslims. But now, we see many youth who have a big problem with the concept of hellfire. And some of them are leaving Islam because of this. They reject Islam because of, just because of the concept of punishment in the Akhirah. And my theory is that it's because these children, when they were children, they, did not, they were not disciplined. They did not have that healthy fear of authority, fear of parents in their childhood. That's just my theory, Allahu Adam. Uh, but this is possibly another big source of atheism. Uh, so that's my list. How do we address, you know, these issues? Um, I mean, it's pretty self-explanatory. We have to just practice the opposite. We have to uh, teach the opposite. When it comes to progressivism, we teach the correct Islamic view, and we show that the modern world is actually a disaster. We haven't progressed. People today are not more understanding or more knowledgeable about reality and morality than the time of the Prophet or even previous generations. Um, we break the myths and the mythology regarding the past, this idea of the Dark Ages, all of history is this terrible, destructive, disgusting time. No, we just can counteract that by looking at our ancestors, talking to our elders, connecting to um, the elderly who know the past, and they know that actually times were better 50 years ago, 60 years ago, 100 years ago. That's how we can counteract these false uh, myths about the past. The fact versus opinion distinction, we can just obliterate that um, nonsense and teach the correct view. Freedom of choice, easy to um, correct that view as I explained. No one can judge, 
easy to counteract that and show how judgment is so important and how everyone does judgment. They, it's, it's just that these liberals say that don't judge me on things that are liberal, but they themselves are the most judgmental. Some of these people that say don't judge, they're the most judgmental. You know, they'll say that, oh, for example, I keep going back to hijab. Like, oh, if a sister is not wearing hijab, don't judge her. Don't say anything to her. Like another sister shouldn't go to that sister and say, oh, well, sister, why don't you try wearing hijab? Say, no, don't judge her. She's going on her own journey. But they'll judge the first sister who went and told, told her to wear the hijab. <laughs> so they'll judge her for telling her to wear the hijab, but they also say, don't judge. So that doesn't really make much sense. And then um, lack of disciplining children, we need to revive or make sure that we practice this discipline of children and not think that, oh, if I tell my child no, or if I give him a spank when he deserves it, that's going to ruin him or that's going to make him hate me. No, the exact opposite. That's going to increase the love of your children for, for you as a parent. So that's uh, the points, and we can go to Q&A, inshallah. So the question is, someone has... Uh, is doubting Islam um, and they reject Islam and they ask you to prove Islam, is it possible to prove Islam as fact uh, in light of what I said earlier about fact versus opinion? Uh, yes, it, you can prove it as a fact. Um, Allah exists is a fact. Islam is true is a fact. The Prophet ﷺ is a prophet. He's the last messenger. That's a fact. These are all facts. You can prove them, but not through necessarily uh, scientific empirical methodology. You can use uh, rational proofs. You can use uh, abductive reasoning, inductive reasoning. You can use, um, you know, according to some, you can use de deductive reasoning. So you can still establish it as fact, but it's not going to be a scientific fact like, oh, let's look at the microscope and discover that Islam is the truth. So if my son or a family member came and told me I have doubts or I don't believe, then we just have a conversation and I tried to figure out what's the source of that doubt, what has caused him. Because the first thing you have to understand the source of the problem. What is, is it? A, is it friends? Is it you know the school? What is really the source of the problem? And identifying that is the first step to addressing the problem and changing the problem. So then I need to have a conversation and figure that out. So what, what's the solution or what's the response for children who come and say, well, we don't, we're disturbed by the concept of nar. But that's the thing, like it's hard to give uh, like an argument or an answer. Like there are arguments that you can present um, to them. But we have to understand that the environment and certain non-verbal, non-cognitive or, or non-discursive things affect people. Like we're not machines, we're not computers. And a lot of the problems in Iman or maybe even outright kufr is a product of the environment. Like you can associate atheism actually with the breakdown of family. Because, or the breakdown of marriage, the breakdown of extended family. Um, there are some studies that show that when you have an extended family, a society where families are, you have like so many cousins, you have so many um, family members living close together, um, that actually has a positive impact on belief. Like those people are more likely to believe in God and be religiously observant. Whereas 
people in atomistic societies where they don't really have family, it's like a nuclear fam family or even a single parent family, the level of atheism is actually higher and they've correlated it to the family size and the stability of the family. So this is, and, and on the spiritual level as well, people will note, uh, the imams will note, that if you go to places of sin, if you go to certain environments of kufr, then that kufr can spiritually affect you as well. Uh, so there are many different factors that affect how we believe and how we think um, that are not just what you read in a book or an argument that you read or watch on YouTube. So again, like there, we could talk about specific arguments, but ultimately you have to address the environmental factors um, of disbelief. When should you spank your children? Spanking your children, it really needs to be, um, you know, the things that are major violations. One of the, the thing is that you have to be selective. Like if you just spank them for every little thing, then it starts losing meaning. And also your children might start like hiding things from you because they're too afraid of you spanking them because you're always doing it. You have to be very selective. And it should be things that are uh, major violations. So for little children, the biggest violation is if they lie about something. If they lie to you and you know you tell them, is this, did this happen, yes or no? And you, they clearly, you know for a fact that they have lied, then that I think is justifiable to, you know, you tell, no, this is, you've lied to me. See, this is the proof that you've lied. And that could be justifiable to, spank them for that um yeah because that's really at the core of being a good muslim is to be honest and truthful these are not related to the topic like or this one like, why is atheism bad and wrong atheism is kufr that's why it's bad and wrong how to approach a group of both muslim women and men that are hanging out beyond educational benefit in a work or university environment Muslim girls in hijab openly mingling with the opposite sex. How do you approach this situation? Is there a sin on me if I ignore as it's happening within a group setting? If it's your friends or it's your contacts, it's enough to tell them that, you know, this is, we should avoid this, this is wrong, mingling, it can lead to zina, it can lead to um, all kinds of sins, so just avoid it. If they don't listen to you, then then there's no sin on you. You've done your best. Uh, but then don't like waste your time uh, to to try to convince stubborn people. Because you can tell if someone is really stubborn, then they're not going to change. Then it's not really worth you stressing out about it. You've done what you could and they're just being stubborn. So may Allah guide them. Uh, the question, is there anything specifically different for Australia as opposed to the US? And I don't think so. Like from what I've seen, this it's... The main challenges, especially regarding things like atheism and the influence of these ideologies, it's exactly the same. It's exactly the same. Um, but the one thing that you guys have, mashallah, that's very good, and I've said this uh, to some of the brothers, is that you have this, um, you know, Ahl Sunnah wal Jama'ah, and you have this group, and you follow one Sheikh, uh, Sheikh Abu Ayman. And you have that kind of structure, and you have these marakas. That's really beautiful. That's a great system, because you don't have in the U.S. This is rare. It's harder to find like a national group 
all the national groups are liberals. All the national organizations in the U.S. are highly influenced by liberalism. So the fact that you have something that's successful, mashallah, um, and you have that structure, you have the respect, everyone is respecting the sheikh and following him, and this has a nice hierarchy, a nice structure. This is a big difference from what I can tell, Allahu Alam, and I think it's compared to the U.S. So that's a blessing. You should preserve it and support it. Yeah, that's a very good question. The brother is asking, how do we fight against psychology? This psychology is like a Trojan horse, and it's being promoted within masajid um, and within communities. Uh, I think it's being promoted because it's seen to be something like medicine. And obviously, medicine is good. How can anyone oppose medicine? Uh, but this is a false understanding of what psychology is. Psychology is the application of Western philosophy to like hu the human personality and um, mental issues. So they take a lot of liberal philosophy and that's what becomes psychology when applied to mental health or a person's personality, etc. Um, just as an example, um, you know, they'll say something like within psychology that if there is an authority that you have to obey, then that can be oppressive and you have to really find your own path. If your parents are criticizing you, then they could be toxic. Just cut them out of your life. If you have a family member that is you know, not supporting you in everything that you do and everything that you choose, cut them out of your life. Um, anyone who disagrees with you is a narcissist. Um, basically, like these, kind, these kinds of ideas, I'm, I'm saying it in a very simplistic way, but that's really what a lot of psychology and mar modern counseling consists of. Or like they completely, you can't even teach the idea that homosexuality is wrong. You can't, if you're a licensed counselor, psychologist, and someone comes to you, in, I don't know about Australia, but in the U.S. Yeah, so yeah, we're not even talking about quote-unquote conversion therapy. If you come to the psychologist or the counselor and say that, oh, I am uh, gay or I feel like I have this attraction, they don't even have to try to quote-unquote convert you. They have to affirm your identity and they have to affirm your sexuality. Uh, forget about conversion. So if they don't do that, then they'll lose their license. That's why a lot of Muslims... They don't even, they can't even go into psychology to make a living. They can only bill themselves as a life coach or just like a, a non-licensed counselor. Um, so that's just a small example. But other things too, like um, the example that I always use is um, they have a certain idea about what's healthy sexuality. So if you are a virgin and you're 25 years old because you're a Muslim and you're not, you're staying away from zina, you go to a psychologist or you get evaluated or maybe at a university or wherever they evaluate you, they think that you have some kind of problem. Like you are socially dysfunctional because you're still a virgin at 20, 20 years old, 21 years old, 22 years old. They think zina is the norm. That is, zina is normal, it's natural, and if you don't engage in it, you have some kind of mental problem or some psychological issue or personality problem. So where is this coming from science? You know, is this coming from like 
uh, empirical determination of human nature. No, this is their philosophy, and it's being packaged as a medical, uh, a medical science. But it's not. It's just a liberal philosophy that all of their assumptions are based off of. Sigmund Freud, for example, the father of modern psychoanalysis, he was anti-religion, obviously. He said the whole idea of, of God is coming from some sexual dysfunction, like frustration that you have. That's the whole idea of religion, right? So the, the whole history of psychology is, has been anti-religion, um, anti-God, so we have to be aware of that so we don't get infiltrated by this Trojan horse. A lot of the uh, Muslim psychologists, when I see what they're teaching, they're just uh, adopting all of these ideas. And they'll like try to sugarcoat or sprinkle in some hadith and say, oh, this is Islamic psychology. And it's very superficial. Uh, they haven't actually attacked the roots of the problem, which is the liberalism and the atheism that is at the root of psychology. So that's a very good point. Okay, so the follow-up question is, well, but there are serious mental health issues, so how do we address those? If we just dismiss psychology, it's like we're dismissing the whole idea of mental health problems. Yeah, that's, that's correct, um, but just to give us a broader perspective, mental health issues, like what is now called mental health issues, those kinds of problems as real problems yeah, that, those have existed um, in Muslim history and there, the, there are ways to deal with those problems. Um, and, and a lot of the problems that people have now psychologically is just a product of the crazy world that we live in and the um, degeneracy and the atomization of society. But in terms of other problems, they have existed throughout Islamic history. You don't need psychology, which wasn't invented at that time, to address those kinds of problems. The whole idea of tarbiya, for example, the whole idea of tezkiya, tezkiya to nafs, you know, purifying yourself, uh, going and learning and benefiting from shuyukh who will advise you and they'll help you. Um, you can, uh, we have these kinds of cures in our tradition, um, so we should take advantage of those and, and revive those. Okay, yeah, so, barakallahu feekum.